You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my good friend, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. Happy New Year, buddy. Happy New Year. How you doing? <laughs> doing well. Welcome to 2021. Oh, boy. Well, you know, that's a, that's a relief in a way. <laughs> nothing like starting off strong with a little bit of COVID variant. That's another good yes, way to start. That's right. That's just what we needed. <laughs> that's just what we need. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Let's get a few things out of the way. First and foremost, how are you doing? You've been working on some stuff and going, I, you told me off the record that you had an incredible New Year's Eve by just working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was my glamorous New Year this year. So we're just... <laughs> Got some deadlines coming up that always come up at the end of the year like this or the beginning of the new year. So just pushing to get that done. And then we'll hopefully take a few days to breathe after that. Did you get to watch the ball drop in New York with like the 10 other people in New York in, in Times Square? I, I, I did not. Okay. I, I was, I was, I was, I was really hoping it would just be like this big, like glistening coronavirus. That, just <laughs> that sort would of be like hilarious. Descended. And then it just explodes. But, yeah, there's like, a, right. there's like a big vaccine needle like coming in at the bio zero. Yeah, that's right. That, that's, the what, that's the kind of hope we need this year. Why did they not consult you for the New York <laughs> ball drop? That'd been awesome. Yeah, we. I couldn't believe that last year, right before it was crazy, we had a wonderful New Year's Eve party with some friends in the mountains, and it was easy to find a Netflix like countdown for the boys, you know, so they, we can do it early, right? So I thought, oh my gosh, this year there's gonna be tons of them because everybody's at home. I couldn't find one, so we <laughs> we rushed to find a random one and then put them to bed a little early and had a little time to ourselves. And we actually made it to midnight. We usually don't. Yeah, I'm 42. I just want to go to bed sometimes. So. It was crazy. We at our house, it's always crazy because this time of the year in three weeks now, in three weeks time, we celebrate our 10 year anniversary, had Christmas, had my eldest son's birthday, and then had New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and then celebrated my youngest son's birthday yesterday. So that was all in three wow. weeks period. It was a large hurrah. Now in two more weeks, we have two more birthdays coming up and then we'll be done for a while. So it's been good. It was a wonderful time to celebrate our youngest, Everett's birthday turned three. It's one of those moments for us, just kind of a bittersweet. It was more than sweet. It's like wonderful. But three years ago, my wife gave birth to our third and last child, and she nearly died on giving birth to our last one. So it was. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful time to celebrate, but it's also kind of one of those times where it's a little hard to think about. Is my wife just, she was, she pretty much hemorrhaged for about an hour and a half afterwards. And uh, thankfully she had an emergency hysterectomy to save her life. And so good news is we're all healthy. It's all wonderful. It's all beautiful, but we still have the memory, which kind of gives it a little bit of a different perspective. So and, you know, to make things a little bit lighter on a lighter note, it's almost kind of funny because I feel like our middle child literally has middle child syndrome to the fullest extent because our first one was born on Christmas day, which was immensely remarkably memorable, right? Our last one, yep. not remarkably memorable on the other on the other side of the spectrum and then i'm like how were you born jude our middle one i, I don't remember <laughs> I don't, so you were somehow you were kind of the normal birth Just sort of so, appeared yeah so literally the poster <laughs> child of middle syndrome like you came i'm not sure how were you adopted i don't remember so, so anyway so it's been a wonderful time had a great time really busy glad to have a little pre for a couple of weeks but let's get in to the show, a couple of things. Hey, if you want to leave a review, please do so. We need some. Thank you for those who've been leaving reviews around the world that I can't see all the time because apparently I, you know, with the podcast, you just see the American reviews. So I've seen a couple through come through my email through the worldwide 
reviews. I really appreciate that. Keep them coming. You can do an Apple podcast. If you want to support us, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast for a small monthly donation or one time through PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. So one quick thing. I know we have a series of questions from our faithful listeners. We haven't got to them yet. Hold on. I want to get to them at some level, but I want to make sure Mark's available. And if you notice, we've had some technical difficulties with Mark. I think he can lend a great voice to some of these questions that have been piling up. So we're not ignoring you by any means. We really appreciate them. Uh, and they're always in the forefront of our mind, but we're just finding the right time to do so. So please hold on tight for those who sent questions. We want to answer them. We'll do them as best and as quickly as possible. So let's get in. Now, I guess let's just go straight into the variant, Stephen, because that's the big issue. You know, we, we recorded last Monday and we talked about it and you said, hey, it's pretty clear that's probably all around the world by now at some level. And then the next day, of course, it lands in my own home state, at least formally acknowledged in Colorado. So now since then, I don't know where it's gone. I know Colorado, I think Florida or something or some other place uh, it's been in. But I want to kind of throw back to you to give us an update on this variant, because there's some things that seem to be concerning. You know, there was a, a New York Times article saying why it should be worrisome in one little one little graph. And I'm always concerned about one little graph. It always makes things, I feel like that it's a little more complicated than that, but it showed Britain skyrocketing cases per million compared to all the other countries around Britain. So my question is to you is like, where are we at in this? And is that what we're seeing Britain going to happen to us? Is it expected or are there other variables in, involved? But let's just, where are we at with this right now? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said last week, it's it's definitely concerning in a way that many other sort of developments or mutations in the virus have not been particularly concerning. This one is, is, is much more so. And, and again, it, it all comes down to the fact that it really does look like it it spreads substantially easier than, than some of the other variants that we've seen. As, there's still a huge range of estimates around that amount, yeah. but it's pretty clear that it's more transmissible than, than the things that we've seen before. So a couple we've gotten a couple of answers over the past week that were still unclear when we last spoke about it. So to give a quick rundown of those, part of the reason why we thought we might have first seen the variant in the UK is because the UK is doing a ton of, of genetic testing of the viruses. Mm -hmm. When they get samples, they're doing a lot of sequencing so that they can identify these kinds of variants very quickly. And so part of the question was, is this a problem in the UK or was it just detected in the UK because they're doing they're, they're looking so hard for this mm. kind of thing? My hunch last week was that it, it was just detected in the UK and was not, you know, it was basically everywhere, but it had been detected in the UK. And, and that's beginning to change a little bit because many other countries, especially surrounding the UK that are also doing a lot of testing are now starting to see increases in that variant, but they had not detected them before. So I'm thinking about Denmark in particular, where over the past four weeks, the, the, the relative prevalence of the new variant has grown from about a tenth of a percent to about two and a half percent, which means that it's starting to overtake the other strains, yeah. just as we saw in the UK. Okay. So we've seen these graphs, for example, from the New York Times, where there are these huge spikes yeah. in, in cases in the UK, which is, which is really alarming. And also, I mean, personally, I think you and many of our listeners know that I, I lived there for about four and a half years. Yeah. And so, I mean, personally speaking, it's just, it's just like heartbreaking to yeah. see, you know, just this like hospitals being overwhelmed and ambulances having to wait outside because there's nowhere mm -hmm. to unload people who are, who, who are sick. It's uh, it's it's a really difficult situation and is 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 rapidly getting worse. So taking a step back, you know, what does this mean for 
us, for the world. It's true. So as as we said last week, the variant is very widespread. It's been detected in many different countries. You know, it's here, it's spreading. But I anticipate that we're a little bit earlier on in our experience of this variant than places um, like the UK and seemingly like South Africa, where they've really seen these big spikes in infections happening. There are a a couple of things coming into play here. So in many ways, this is the worst possible time for a variant of this sort to emerge, right? Of course it is. uh, Since (laughs) April, I've been worried about the spread of the coronavirus precisely this week, right? Like the beginning of January, end of December, beginning of January, I've been saying from the beginning, like this This was going to be the hardest time to control the coronavirus. And now here we are with not only dealing with the regular seasonal variation in the coronavirus, compounded by the fact that we've just had some substantial holidays, compounded by the fact now that we also have a more transmissible variant. So I think that that part of the UK's story is that this was, in many ways, the worst possible time for something like this to really start ramping up its spread. So conversely, that means that for the rest of the world, since the spread is just starting to take off, we, we do have a problem on our hands and we have something, you know, we, we really need to stay on top of this variant. And I'll, I'll talk in a moment about how to do that. Okay. But due to the timing of things, hopefully we'll be a little bit further removed from our holidays. Hopefully we'll be a little bit closer to the spring. All of things that will help us get a little bit more control over this virus so that it's not really, you know, so that not all of those vectors are sort of moving in the same direction that are mm-hmm. making it really difficult to control. So I I don't want to sort of paint too rosy of a picture here. Like this is going to be very difficult to control. Yeah. But I'm also hopeful that, that I, I, I think that in many ways the UK has seen, seen the worst possible side of this. Mm. And so so we still have our work cut out for us, but but there's there there are sort of small slivers of hope there okay. for ways that we can help maintain control. Now, all of the things that we know about that prevented the spread of the previous variants of the coronavirus work here too. Masking, physical distancing might have to be a little bit more diligent about those things, sort of in proportion to the increased transmissibility of the virus. We have to be a little bit more diligent about those those same those same measures, because really the most important thing we can do is just reduce cases overall, because that improves our ability to detect the variant, to do the testing and the tracing that we need to do to really determine where it's spreading. So again, just bringing down cases is the most important thing we can do right now to give us one leg up on this this virus. Yeah, and I I heard it was the CDC that said they're going to ramp up. Now again, I don't know the technical language of this, the the type of testing to actually discover more of the variant and where it's located, whatever it's called. So we're ramping that up right now. Yeah, yeah, we're ramping it up. I mean, it's it's something I wish we could have done months yeah, ago, but sure. but it's good that we're doing it now. You yeah. know, it's it's badly needed. And and in the qualify this case, it's the same stuff, right? There's no way we can kind of like surgically know in any way ahead of time how to address the particular variants. We just have to kind of like do this general masking, social distancing, don't go to work if you don't have to, these kind of things. Now, going back to its transmissibility, we talked about how it, we, there's no science at this moment that it's actually more dangerous, that kind of stuff, at least by, in the sense of causing greater harm. Now, its transmissibility can cause collateral damage significantly. Now, when it comes to it, its increased transmissibility, do we know exactly why? Is it just the viral load that's actually or, you know, how we went back in April and May and did this kind of like, I don't know if it's semantical argument or if it's actually like, is it airborne or is it or is it molecules? Has any of that kind of language begun to shift? Like, oh, it seems to be more airborne now. Or is there anything else being added to the equation or is it just viral load inside the individual body? 
Yeah, I mean, there have been a number of questions. There are a couple of different ways that a virus can become more transmissible. So one of them is that it shifts into different demographic groups, for example. And there was a lot of concern early on that maybe this variant might be more infectious and transmissible among kids. Now, it's looking more and more like that is probably not the case, or at least we don't have a lot of good evidence suggesting that, even though there seemed to be disproportionate rises of cases of this variant in kids in the UK, that's confounding by the fact that during the most recent UK lockdown, schools stayed open. Uh, okay. So so there was more mixing among kids, which could explain why we see the variant relatively increasing in yeah. those younger age groups. Second way that you can increase transmissibility is by extending the duration of time in which you're infectious. So basically uh, lengthening the infection curve without actually ramping up virus. Okay. And there's still some ongoing studies about this, but some of the epidemiological modeling, basically you can ask, well, if, if that were the case, what would we expect to see in the numbers of cases and the numbers of hospitalizations that we're seeing? And those numbers just don't quite match up. Okay. So the, the the clearest explanation that we have, and this is also corroborated by by, by sample people is is actually that they're producing more virus okay. basically that for whatever reason this this variant allows you to make more virus in your nose and throat mm-hmm. which then makes you more infectious um, and so increases the probability of airborne transmission it basically just makes more virus in the air which makes a person more infectious which makes it harder to control now would it be fair then to say that we would go ahead going back in so we've mentioned this a uh, number at least i have the pareto principle the 80 20 rule and so then we started in march talking about this in this con- in its concept and how do we address the pandemic and its virus then say seven months later we talked about the pareto principle as like oh it seems as though as this the the coronavirus is largely being transmitted on a large level through a small number of people that's infecting a large group of people. So it was roughly 20% of the cases result in 80% of the transmission. With this variant, mm-hmm. is it safe to say that maybe the Pareto principle is being blown out of the water and it's no longer that 20%, but now it's 30 or 40 or 50%? Of course, I'm just adding random numbers, but is it, is sure. it just, is it now it could be a large, now we're just getting a larger percent of cases being able to transmit it? Yeah, that's that's what I anticipate, and it's it'll be it'll be interesting to know what exactly that that relationship is, because again again there are two possibilities. One is that more people are crossing the threshold of infectiousness, so you're basically just have more infectious people in the population, or you might be taking that entire distribution, the number of people a person's expected to infect, and just multiplying it by a constant, which means the Pareto con- pr- principle is still oh, there. Yeah. That you know that you know twenty percent of the people cause eighty percent of transmission, but now instead of those high 20% causing five infections, they're causing 15. Okay. And so, so it's, it'll be, and, and, and it's important to get an answer to that question because that does change the way that we intervene. It really changes whether we still want to try to target the super spreading events, or if now we really need to focus on just sort of widespread community transmission more. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's, that's something that we're really going to be working on answering as epidemiologists in the coming weeks. Okay. So we'll stay tuned on that. I will report back as this continues to develop related to this is the vaccine. You said you talked about this, that it's actually kind of the talk about the vaccine, when to take it, how to take it. It's beginning to shift because of the variant. Before you, I give the mic back over to you to talk about this. I want to add one more caveat to this so you can lump these both in. I read this article a couple weeks ago, so it's a little, little old. It said, should people take both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines one after the other? It's not talking about whether you should take both, meaning 
twice, four times. The idea was I'll read this and then I want you to come in a light of what you're hearing about the buzz about the variant and how we should be taking the vaccine and maybe incorporate into this kind of interesting concept. This here comes from the article. What's unknown is whether you'd induce an even stronger response with a different form of the coronavirus vaccine. In immunology, the concept is called heterologous prime boost. I don't know if I said it right. And some studies suggest that it might be more effective way to design vaccine regimens, especially for challenging diseases such as malaria, tuberculosis, and HIV, right? So this idea of taking maybe Pfizer for your first one, and then second one being the Moderna one is how that might actually help things. Now to add more on your plate, I just came to mind. So this is a lot, but you're going to go with it. I'll remind you is that I saw the like either FDA thinking about cutting Moderna vaccines in half the amount so as to spread out more and get more vaccines that came alarm bells to me like well are we are we losing the effectivity of this or so so now in light of the craziness of the variants re-examining right how we do vaccines which you talked about potentially cutting moderna vaccines in half and then with this possible opportunity talk about all this and how it works with the variant yeah so on a broad scale, again, as I mentioned last week, I think it still seems like the vaccines that we have available are effective against the variant. And so the, the emphasis has shifted now to really sort of racing against the variant to try to get as many people vaccinated as possible. That has raised all sorts of interesting ideas. Mm. And so really what we're trying to do is, is, is we're in this difficult position where we have a specific set of evidence that comes from the vaccine trials themselves and from our experience with other vaccines that we have in the past, like you cited with malaria and HIV and tuberculosis. So we're trying to integrate all of that information along with the specific information that we have about these particular vaccines and then project forward and ask, you know, what would happen if we do these things that haven't been specifically studied necessarily. But we're, we're in this, this crisis situation, really, where, where some sort of action is demanded of us. So before I answer some of these specific questions, I want to take a step back and say that that sort of from a high level, this this reflects some of the some of the discussions we had way back in April about lockdowns. There were really a couple of camps that separated out. One of which said that we don't have enough evidence to suggest that lockdowns are effective, and we really need like solid randomized controlled trials in different communities showing that lockdowns are effective before we can do them. And that's a very sort of like concrete evidence-based way of making decisions. Now, on the other hand, there is a group that said like, we have this emerging crisis and there's a lot of reason to think that lockdowns could be effective in reducing this. And in the absence of further information, we need to act now because we have a crisis on our hands. And so we can collect the evidence as we go, but we need to do something. And and that's a really interesting debate because that, that sort of sits outside of the realm of just like scientific fact, right? That 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 is an entire sort of philosophical underpinning of like, what is evidence and what is data and how do we incorporate those into the decisions and the actions that we make? Basically, what's the interface between ethics and data? And that's a much thornier question. Yeah. So we're, we're sort of addressing these same sorts of things now with the vaccine is that we have sort of this, this lack of certain types of evidence that we wish that we had. But now we have this new variant that's running rampant and we have to, we have to act and we have to remember that even inaction is a type of action. Yeah. And so and so what do we do? Great. So now drilling into the question about the vaccine itself. So a couple of the of the approaches that I've that I've heard about that you just mentioned are one, 
that there could be this mixing and matching of of the different vaccine types. Now, I think that this is not so much to speed up vaccination as it is to potentially induce a, a stronger immune response. Yeah. Although, if a community ran out of one type of vaccine, it, it, it could be helpful if they had the other one on hand sure. to, to, to administer the other one. So it could still help in this speeding up the vaccine progress. Now, I don't know an awful lot about the, I think, as you mentioned, the, the heterologous vaccine yeah. sort of protection and whether in this particular case of SARS-CoV-2, whether that would be more effective. But but it, intuitively, it, it makes some sense to me yeah. to expose yourself to slightly different types of the variant. And basically that broadens out your immune response, which might make you more immune in some ways to new challenges to slightly varying coronaviruses, because these things are always varying a little bit on some degree. So I think that's a really interesting question. But the most pressing question is, is what can we do to speed up the administration yeah. of vaccines? Now, the UK, I believe, is considering, if they haven't already approved a plan, to basically delay the second dose. So they're giving a bunch of people the first dose, oh. and then they're saying, we'll still give people the second dose, but we're just going to wait. Now, of course, there there isn't good evidence on this. In, people in the trials got the first vaccine, and then, then like clockwork, got the second vaccine for the most part. So we don't really have good evidence of what happens if you delay that second dose. Mm. Immunologically, based on what we've seen from previous vaccines, it still seems likely that that will be pretty effective, and so that that people will still sort of mount a good second immune response. But of course, SARS-CoV-2 is a different virus yeah. than these other things have been studied on, and so the dynamics of immunity are different. So we we are sort of treading into unknown waters, but but we need to because, again, I mean, you saw those those case rates in the UK, and they're they're climbing really fast, yeah. and so I think there's a really good case to be made for immunizing as many people as possible as quickly as possible. Now, the the second idea that that has come up is potentially giving people half doses of the Moderna vaccine. So rather than giving the full, I think, 100 milligram dose, you get 50 instead. Okay. But you still do your two doses right on schedule. So that has a similar effect of doubling the number of people you can vaccinate with the same number of, right. of doses, but doing it in a, in a way that's a little bit closer to the way that the trials were run. Now, the vaccine trials that, that that we have for both Moderna, I mean, all of the vaccine trials are still ongoing. So we're still collecting data from the people who are in the trials. They've entered into phase four as well. Okay. So we're following people up who have gotten the vaccine in this new wave. And part of the motivation for doing the half dose of the Moderna vaccine is that it is actually based off of this continuation of their trial in which they've been, they've been following people who got the half dose of the vaccine. Oh. And recent evidence that just recently came out suggests that the people who got that half dose actually do mount just as good of an immune response as the people who got the full dose. So this is now grounded a little bit more firmly in evidence, in evidence that we specifically have about this specific vaccine, which um, makes a lot of people a lot more comfortable with administering it in this way. So I think that there are a lot of other ideas that are going to be tossed around, but this is sort of the way in which we're starting to think about them. Now, of course, there are a lot of issues with this as well, where you know, with changing the vaccine dosing, with changing the vaccine timing, there's questions of efficacy, there's questions of duration of immunity. And there've also been these emerging questions of, could that change the way that the virus itself is evolving to maybe make it easier for the virus to evolve resistance to the vaccine mm -hmm. and put us in a difficult spot as well? Now, there's a lot of good studies out there on uh, why it's harder to develop 
resistance to a vaccine than it is to develop resistance to a pharmaceutical treatment. Mm -hmm. I need to review sort of the nuts and bolts of that before I can talk into that. Maybe we can talk about that next week. But those are things that we're working on and things that people are really asking questions about now is like, what are all of the potential implications of this, both in the immediate term for preventing the spread of this new variant, but also in the long term, making sure that we don't get an even bigger problem on our hands. I'm glad you mentioned that one thing just a couple, like a minute ago, because when you're talking about, oh, you know, the, by doing half dosages and there's maybe ideas of how could this affect the virus? This is the exact same thing that, again, I know it's just pure speculation that we think could have been a contributor to causing the actual variant of it was the pharmaceutical treatments, right? That maybe prolonged the virus in the body that made it mutate and that kind of stuff. And Lord, I would not want that to be part of the vaccine agenda as well to have a stronger mutation. So we'll report next week to see how that works. Kind of goes straight into the U.S. and how seen there's 4.2 million doses have been given so far up to basically the end of December. And the goal was 20 million, which we're far off, far off from. We see Israel hitting 10%, the first in the world, 10% of the population getting the vaccine. Do you have anything to contribute to why this may have happened, why we've fallen short? Or like you just said, more people need to, and I'm guessing at least I'm sure systems have failed. That's a big issue. And part of the equation is getting more of the vaccine, like you said, by half dosages, giving more people. But if we don't have the right systems, it's still going to be July before we get everybody. And not to add one more thing, but I signed up yesterday to be notified when I'm up for my turn of the vaccine. And there was like 17 categories. And I was a little bit sad and then I had to actually scroll to the very, very, very bottom. And I had to click the last radio button. That was, that was me, the very last possible choice. Basically, it was like all else. Click here. I'm like, okay, yeah. well, I'm going to be at the very end. So that stinks. Yep. But I'm happy to give it yep. to the people who need it first. But do you want any anything you want to get insight? Do you want to contribute to where we're at right now with the vaccine and where we need to be? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's disheartening to see that we're lagging so far behind sort of what we hoped we would be able to achieve with vaccination. <laughs> I don't have any clear answers for why that's the case. You know, other than that, you know, in a a way, I think that some of us were kind of caught flat footed because we got two vaccines, you know, that about as quickly as we possibly could. Mm-hmm. It's not really an excuse. I mean, we did have a year to, to start <laughs> developing these, you know, these these vaccination plans. There is a lot of complexity too to this. And, and some of it just comes from the structure of our healthcare system in the United States, our system of governance in the United States. So again, the deployment of vaccines is up to largely up to states and communities. There's been very little federal guidance, but then there's also been a lot of confusion on the state level with each of them trying to come up with their own, own plan. different plans. The the fact that we have a, a very complex health system where people have different insurances from yeah. different places make it really difficult to be proactive. And that, that's really what we need. We need healthcare providers to be actively seeking out people to offer the vaccine to them. And instead, we're in the scenario where the onus is on the individual yeah. to sign up for yeah. getting a vaccine in in ways that are often pretty convoluted. You know, it, it just personally speaking, like I've spoken with various people who are like trying to get a vaccine yeah. and there's just not very clear protocols. And, and it wasn't even clear where to do it or how to do it or the follow-up was you sort of got different messages in different places and i mean this this really is not 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 the situation you want to be in where you're trying to vaccinate huge amounts of your population very quickly Mm. i don't know what exactly has gone wrong but but there's there's clear places to fix and i think that, that the clearest is to be proactive in 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 reaching out to people 
to notify them and directly offer them the vaccine in whatever way we can. And I don't know what the solution to that is, but but we need it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it kind of reminds me, and this is not taking a political stance at all. It's just the idea of when you live in a country that really embraces, I don't want to say it seems like radical to some countries, but extreme autonomy, right? So right. I want, I get to choose. There's a lot of great benefits from that, but also that when you create right. a system that actually is to support that, then the onus becomes more and more on you in good ways, but also bad ways. We're like, well, if you want it, right. it's up to you to get it, buddy. Because because right. when I saw it, I got an email and I literally had to stop my, my son's birthday party for so I can go to the bathroom. Like, I, the way I read is it, like, oh, we'll be, you'll be notified for some like press release. I'm like, well, where's a press release going to be? Like, I have no, so I, or click here and sign up. Like, well, this is my only chance. So I got to sign up and get it. Otherwise, I have no idea which press release I'm going to be notified right. and which, which channel. So I really encourage you guys to dig, find it. Hopefully, your county, Boulder County here in Colorado has done a great job, at least letting me, letting me know where I could sign up and, uh, in five seconds and be notified when my, my time is available. Another thing I wanted to bring up to you. This is kind of related. It's, it was a hopeful thing that I saw yesterday, and then I didn't clip it, and so I didn't know where it was at. But I was shocked to read that said evidence shows that natural immunity may last up to a decade. And I was just like, whoa, because, you know, up to this point, we're thinking, oh, maybe a year at max. And we're seeing a lot of people at six to eight months re-getting COVID. And where did 10 years come from? So I'm going to throw it past you. I'm like, have you seen anything to even suggest this? And, and where is this anything that could be valid? Yeah, I mean, so I think that we can we can sort of add this to the pile of studies that are trying to answer exactly how long immunity lasts. Mm -hmm. Now, with with any of these studies, especially things that make claims about the duration of immunity that's longer than we've had the virus with us, <laughs> sure. we have to take it with a massive grain of salt. Mm -hmm. Because really, what's happening here is that we want to know essentially what is that distribution? You know, how yeah. many people? What percentage of the population is going to have immunity for what amount of time? Yeah. That's the key. And what we're trying to do is to measure that in in ways that sort of get at that. Whereas the only way to actually measure it is to actually measure it, to actually follow people for yeah. a year, for five years, for 10 years, and to see how many of them, what proportion of them get reinfected. And then that, you know, that's that's then how we know what that distribution is. But instead, what we're trying to do is to sort of look around the corner, you know, obliquely get at that, <laughs> yeah. that information by measuring things like the duration of immune response in the human body and sort of trying to extrapolate how long different immune cells last and incorporate the proportion of people who we've observed get reinfected and then try to make statistical inferences about the population based on how rare or not rare those events are. And, and so you could, you could do some very good science around this to try to figure out how long it's going to last. But, you know, the fact is we, we just don't know. <laughs> and we're not going to know for a while. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, it's, I think it is possible that, that natural immunity to the coronavirus in some cases could last for a very long time. There's a whole continuum of what immunity means. Does that mean protection from infection? Does that mean protection from disease? Does that mean, you know, like, how does that stand up depending on how old you are, or how severe your exposure was, or how many times you've been re-exposed yeah. in the meantime? Like, yeah. I, all of a sudden, the questions just compound yeah. and compound. And so, sure, I believe that that some people will have very long-lasting immunity to the coronavirus, and clearly some others have very sure. short-lasting immunity to the coronavirus. Really, what we want to know is what's that mean, yeah. and what's the variance around the mean? And, and, and to measure that, we just need a lot of observations over a long period of time, which it's still going to be a little while before we know that. Yeah. So that's that's sort of the, the skeptical lens that I'm taking towards these different studies. All of them are important. All of them are contributing something to our knowledge of the duration of immunity. But pulling any one of them out 
and sort of taking their claims on, on on any direction, I think is 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 difficult, because right now we just have so many different studies that say so many different things, yeah. and so it's best to sort of take them all in their aggregate, and then also take a step back and realize it, realize sort of scientifically what they're doing, which is trying to get at this question from different angles, mm-hmm. none of which are the direct angle that we really need, but which we won't be able to answer for for a number of years yeah. yet. Okay, and again, having these conversations, I'm sorry, I'm going all over the place, different questions because you'll say something like, oh, yes, what about this? The other burning question this kind of related to immunity in that is the vaccine anything on the glimmer of idea of whether that vaccine will prevent transmissibility from the person or this keeps themselves from actually getting it but it still can transmit it but is that still up 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 for grabs to my knowledge, mm. still up for grabs. I, I have no no additional clarity on yeah. that question yet. Man, so. I'm so excited to get that answer, hopefully. Okay, so another couple yeah. couple more questions. One quick one. This is from weeks ago. I don't know if I'm getting up saying right. Illum COVID test. I read this, and I thought of you thinking, this is the answer, right? FDA authorizes first rapid over-the-counter home coronavirus test from the Washington Post. I read a little bit. Is this one of those things we've been talking about? We're like, yes, we finally get an at-home test we're looking for, especially with this variant. Now is the time to get it. Is this we're looking for? Did FDA approve this? Or is this another one of those, well, maybe, maybe kind of different? Yeah, it's another, well, maybe kind of, kind of different, <laughs> unfortunately. It's so... Uh, It is the type of technology that we're talking about. It's a rapid antigen test that can be administered at home, which is great. And I think really what this is pointing to is sort of this this focus on on the technology when really what we need are are other things. It's more logistical considerations that are are standing in our way at this point. So the Illum test that you just mentioned runs on this sort of rapid antigen test, the paper strip test like we've been talking about. But it connects with your phone via Bluetooth and then it reports out the result to your to your phone, which means that there's like electronics involved and that makes the test more expensive and you need to get it with a prescription. You Uh, can't just pick it up over the counter. And so that increases all of these barriers because you need to be able to pay for a physician visit and then to pay for the test <laughs> and then to get it at your home after picking up a prescription. And so again, by that time, there's, yeah. there's these delays, there's these monetary barriers and it's, it's like relatively complex to produce. It's a lot more complex than just printing off a bunch yeah. of paper sheets with these primers on them. And so that reduces our ability to sort of produce them at high volume. Mm-hmm. There've been a couple of others that have been given emergency approval as well, but all of them sort of suffer from the same, these same issues. Not all of them are electronic, yeah. but all of them are sort of more involved, more materials than these paper strip tests, which sort of raises the barrier to their access. Yeah. And all of them need a, a doctor's prescription. So none of them are yet really what we're looking for, where we need people to be testing themselves yeah. frequently, yeah. cheaply, yeah. you know, across the population. And, and really the only barrier right now is is regulatory Man. and logistical. And and that's, that's the reality we're in. So again, it's like encouraging because these are absolutely yeah. steps in the right direction, but it's like there, <laughs> there's... We just haven't crossed the finish line here. That drives me nuts. But that is great. Well, it's okay. yeah. we're close. We're getting closer. But I was hoping that was the answer. Last question. Yeah. It's a big one. But I thought, well, why let's not ask it? Let's go ahead and ask it. We got a few few minutes to spare from the BBC. We've talked about it before, Stephen. You've talked about this in at least 5 to 10 to 15 minutes in detail. But let's bring it back again. Are pandemics the new normal? Now, pandemics have been going on forever Right. And now with this variant, there's a lot of fears. This is going to go on forever. This is going to end. We're going to have this. There's going to be a normalcy. But one day, someday, there's going to be another pandemic. 
Now, do you see in your work, working with your colleagues who are on different areas and different expertise, do you see a future by which pandemics are going to be more prevalent than what we've seen in the past 500 years or so? Or do we see this being roughly the same? And if you do, again, pure speculation, what could be some of the contributors that would that would elevate the the, the number of times we receive one? So I have a note of pessimism and a note of hope. So <laughs> I'll start with a note of pessimism. So on the one hand, I mean, I think that it's hard to like sort of talk about the frequency of relatively rare events like pandemics. You know, it's like, uh, what does it mean for them to be more frequent? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but I think that there, there are good reasons to believe that that our society today is in some ways at higher risk of certain types of pandemics than we have been in the past. Now, now clearly we've been, as you said, subject to pandemics for, as you know, forever. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is not something that's really new, but of course, so some of the issues are that, you know, we're, we're a very globalized world, right? We have people moving all over the world, which allows the transmission of, of, of viruses and other pathogens to happen very quickly, to be very widely disseminated very early on. We have, with acceleration of, of climate change and, you know, different animal habitats are being sort of shifted in important ways. Mm-hmm. Humans are increasingly encroaching on different animal habitats. And, and these animal reservoirs are where a lot of, you know, that, that's really what we're concerned about is, is pathogens crossing over from animals into yeah. humans and then continuing to spread. Um, you know, that said, we sort of have this sense of like, like humans encroaching on the forest and this kind of thing. Yeah. But like, also like, you know, farming can yeah. con- contribute to some of this too. And, and, and that's not to say that like farming, you know, like, we need to eat, right? We need to farm. Sure. But just realistically speaking, you know, like things like avian influenza, like we have cases of flu crossing over from birds yeah. into humans all the time. And thankfully, usually those strains don't transmit from human to human very well. And so they don't cause issues. But we have flu evolving in farmed bird populations and swine populations and all sorts of different places sure. that include both wild <clears throat> animals and then also domesticated animals, as well as in humans ourselves, mm-hmm. where, where, where pathogens are evolving. So, so there are all sorts of different ways for, for, for basically pandemic pathogens to emerge. And while a lot of the, you know, we've had, we've had agriculture for forever, we've been encroaching on animal habitats for forever. And so, you know, these things are not necessarily new, but I think we do need to be paying close attention to the way in which they're happening, the rate at which they're happening, and that all of these things can contribute to potentially an increase in the risk of of another pathogen, another pandemic. Yeah, and and the rate of them could could very well increase. I want to put in an important note that that pandemics look very different from one another, you know, lest, lest we forget HIV is, is a pandemic and, you know, tuberculosis has been at various points in its history considered a pandemic. Some consider it still to be one. So we have respiratory illnesses. We think about coronaviruses, we think about flu, but there are also, you know, HIV and other types of illnesses that cause all sorts of different types of disease that require different types of interventions. And so I think we can also, there's a danger of sort of being in this tunnel vision of like a COVID like pandemic. But that's not necessarily what we what's going to happen next. Yeah. It could be something that spreads in an entirely different manner. It could be waterborne. It could be sexually transmitted. It could be, you know, mm-hmm. what have you. Yeah. But we need to be sort of preparing for all of these things. So the note of hope, what does it mean to prepare? Yeah. So 
One of the really interesting ideas that I think I'm really excited about here, and this has been proposed by Michael Minna and collaborators, but many other people are sort of thinking about this, is that they, they recently wrote a paper in the journal eLife, which I can send, send to you, Matt, basically talking about what they're calling a global immunological observatory to work alongside something that's been previously called a global pathogen observatory. And so basically the idea behind these two different things is to be running consistent surveillance, both for the presence of virus using things like PCR tests and antigen tests for virus, bacteria, other sorts of pathogens and parasites. And now in addition with the Global Immunological Observatory to actually be looking at sort of these micro blood tests to see if people have antibodies to different types of pathogens. And, and what that allows you to do is to both detect the presence of virus itself, but then also if there is a pathogen starting to take hold in a specific community, you can actually sort of look back in history and see if people have been exposed to that pathogen and starting to do this surveillance to see both are they infected now or have they been infected at any point in the past to give you a lot better insight for the emerging spread of these different types of pathogens. Mm. And, you know, why stop at humans? We can do the same sort of thing in different animal reservoirs like bats and wow. birds and yeah. these kinds of things that we know are, are, are sources of crossover. Yeah. And we can do the same sort of testing, the same sort of immunological testing and pathogen testing in these reservoirs where we know that crossover is a concern to try to get one leg up on these crossovers before they happen or to understand sort of what the most likely pathogens are that are posing a threat to humans and really watching out for them to see if they start to develop the potential for human-to-human -human spread. So... I think that's a really exciting area here and something that, that we're starting to invest a lot of work into, where the idea is to start to try to build some of these like sort of climate type and weather type forecasts yeah. for the spread of infectious diseases that I think will, will sort of help counteract this threat of increasing rates of pandemics in the future. It's a bit of a long shot still, you know, we still have a lot of technology to produce, a lot of infrastructure to put in place, but I think that that really is uh, a place to pin some of our hope for the coming century in our relationship with pandemics. I think it's a great hope. I mean, just the, 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 in, you know, to use the word surge, this is about another potential surge, but a good surge of opportunities for work and employment that like, I know it's in the midst of a crisis where we're finding unemployment and I get it. It's very, it's very specific. And, and, and just sad for the people who've lost their job. And the hope that the aftermath of this is there's going to be not just thousands of little epidemiologists trying to clamor for to be under Stephen, but there's going to be all over the place, ecology and, and global climate. I mean, this is just ex going to yeah. explode. Like you said, there's so much even technological infrastructure that's not there because we haven't put our focus into it. It's going to be all over. I mean, there's going to be places for entrepreneurship and everywhere for the next hundred years that's going to benefit globally the whole healthcare system of humanity. So this is this is the hope. This is the excitement in the midst of a really difficult hardship. As we end, I don't know if you can answer this. There was a question brought up. Oh, and it's all transparent. So you can't see actually the question. So I'll take it <laughs> off. But I'll read it here. Do you, I don't know if you can say speak into this. Not sure if you guys are taking live questions from John. But here it goes. T cells versus, oh, can, can I say this? Immunoglobulin, globulin, seems like T cell is longer lasting. Any indication on whether mRNA versus viral vector Oxford are more likely to produce a T cell response? Anything in your neck of the woods that, that hint to one of these? Great question. So absolutely right that for SARS-CoV-2, it looks like the immunoglobulin response does decline substantially over time. And that was behind a lot of these early concerns that immunity might not last yeah. long at all. But then there were these follow-up studies that said, well, wait, there's T-cell immunity that seems to be lasting and seems to be able to allow your body to remember 
what it's been exposed to and to mount a response that way. Mm-hmm. But that's a great question that I don't have an answer to yet. Okay. I'm not sure sort of what the proportion of, of, of immune response that's induced by the vaccine. I anticipate that, I mean, since these vaccines have been really engineered to expose the body to as close to a replica of the pathogen and like the specific parts of the pathogen that your immune response would respond to anyway, I anticipate that there will be a similar response, but I'll follow up on that and see if I can give a better answer next week. Okay, great. So you heard it, John. Stephen will follow up. We'll keep him accountable. Thank you guys all for listening, for the one person watching today. We appreciate all the feedback and all those who've asked questions. They will come and answers as soon as we can get to them. I hope you guys had a wonderful Wonderful, happy new year. I hope it's a great start to the new year and that stay away from making resolutions because resolutions suck and they go away after about three (laughs) weeks. Be more intentional with your life. uh, And we will hopefully see you all next week, next Monday. Take care and bye-bye.